that for you. Well, as Greg said, um, this has caused some disruptions in our lives. How are your spring plans turning out? Um, it seems that very little in our lives is what we expected it to be. Uh, now we're looking at summer plans, wondering what's in store there. And, and while this causes some disruption in our plans, at least, and, and maybe in other ways, um, I, I'm just reminded this morning that we all have a profound sense that the world is not the way it ought to be. And you don't have to look very far for examples of that, from viruses to violence in the world, famine, wars, oppression, poverty, addiction, abuse, death. And you know what's interesting to me? That is one thing that everyone on the planet agrees about. It doesn't matter who you ask, liberal or conservative, male or female, red or yellow, black or white, old or young, atheist, Jew, Muslim, Christian, we certainly disagree about what is wrong in the world and how to fix it, but no one, no one thinks that things are the way that they ought to be. Everybody has this deep sense that things are broken, and that only makes sense if there really is some way that the world ought to be. If it's all an accident, it doesn't matter at all. You don't look at an accident and say, well, this ought to be lying over there. You don't look at a, a puddle on the ground and think that's not what it should be. But if there's an author, if there's a plot, then it makes sense to talk about how the world ought to be and why it's not. And th then it makes sense to actually expect that it will one day become what it was meant to be. And that's why 1 Timothy is incredibly relevant 2,000 years later, after it was written, in the middle of a pandemic and an economic crisis. 1 Timothy is about the economy of God, not meaning GDP and current employment rates, but coming from that Greek word oikonomia, which means the rule of a house, household management. The economy of God is God's way of ordering all things. The way that God is making things the way they ought to be according to God. God is a God of order, and out of nothing, God created everything that exists. And then throughout redemptive history, we see God repeatedly establishing and reestablishing order out of chaos. Think about the flood that he sent on the earth, and out of that flood, God preserved Noah and his family, and they were the first fruits, a new creation, God reestablishing order. God takes his people Israel out of the chaos of slavery in Egypt through the chaos of the Red Sea and brings them into a promised land. God brought his people, exiles scattered in foreign lands, back to the land that he had promised to them. The ultimate order out of chaos we see in redemptive history is Jesus rising from the dead, the guarantee that God makes all things new. So what is God doing in this fallen world? What's he up to today, and what does it have to do with you? We're going to give our attention this morning to 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. And 
as we have been doing throughout this series, I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand as we read this out of our reverence for God and His holy word. We read this book like no other. 1 Timothy three fourteen through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have been exalted in glory. And so you are the one that we look to this morning in faith. We receive your word. We look to you. We trust your spirit, the spirit of the risen Lord Jesus, who lives in each one of your people. We trust you. We hope in you. And we believe that you are at work in the world that you are at work in our lives. And so we pray that you would help us to comprehend by your spirit the mystery of godliness, what you have revealed, what you have accomplished, and how it changes everything in our lives. Produce in us through your word and by your spirit godliness and righteousness and holiness for your namesake. Amen. So you may be seated. These three verses make up the heart of the entire letter of 1 Timothy. Like the heart, these verses pump life-giving truth throughout all the pages to all the extremities of this letter. Not only do these verses contain Paul's purpose statement, but they also contain the glorious Christ-exalting linchpin that holds everything else in this letter Together. And according to 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, that linchpin holding everything together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that linchpin binds you to Jesus, joins you to Jesus, sweeps you up into what God is doing in the world, God's new creation order for the world. According to this text, the, the, the claim that it lays on our lives is that when God establishes his order, his economy. When he establishes his order in your life, it looks like godliness. It's called godliness. And here's where I get that. Paul clearly explains his purpose for writing this letter. It, he was writing to inform Timothy and all the saints in Ephesus how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's verse 15. But behave means way more than you think. A, a parent might nudge a misbehaving child, a pouting or slouching child, and say, behave, as a reminder to kind of sit up and act up and get their act together, kind of modify their behavior in a particular situation. But Paul is not talking about behavior as in a set of rules that apply to a restricted set of time. Like, narrowly defined situations, rules for acting prim and proper on Sunday mornings between 10 and 11 a.m. when you go to this gathering of people who make up the church. He's not talking about behavior that applies to just a narrow segment of our lives. The word that he uses here is way bigger than that. 
It, it communicates the idea of an all-encompassing manner of life, habits, patterns, customs, informed by some truths and principles, your lifestyle. That's what he's talking about. And the other word that Paul uses for this lifestyle is godliness. Look at verse 16, where he says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. We'll come back to the mystery portion of that in a moment. But for now, just notice that word godliness. Godliness is parallel to verse 15, how one ought to behave. Godliness translates a Greek word that Paul uses only in these three letters that we call the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And in these three short letters, Paul uses this word or some form of this word 13 times. He tells Timothy, First Timothy 4, 7, train yourself for godliness. And in chapter 6, verse 11, pursue godliness. So godliness can be intentionally developed. It can be practiced and pursued. You can train for it the way that you train at the gym. The the children and grandchildren of widows, according to chapter 5 verse 4, must learn to show godliness to their own household. So godliness is discernible. It's outwardly observable. It's something that you demonstrate in relationship with other people. Godliness describes the whole of Christian life. Faith and works, gospel doctrine and gospel implications. Because as we've said before, what you believe always comes out in the way that you live. Your life flows out. It's the overflow of what your heart worships, what you believe, what you treasure and desire. So godliness is gospel truth coming out your fingers, coming out in your lifestyle, action flowing out of devotion. And godliness is not restricted to reverent behavior when you're in a church building. It comes out in the everyday stuff of life. It's everyday godliness because the gospel affects absolutely everything. That's what we see in the letter of 1 Timothy, that Paul touches on all kinds of aspects of our lives. He addresses speech and conduct in chapter 4. He speaks of bearing children and raising children and disciplining children. He speaks about marriage and singleness, and he even touches on fashion and jewelry and hairstyles and gender expression. He talks about diets and how you relate to money and how you relate to neighbors and strangers in hospitality. He talks about caring for elderly family members. This is the everyday stuff of life. And Paul is writing the whole letter to explain how members of God's household ought to live. Isn't there a temptation? I'm aware of this in my own life to compartmentalize our lives. There's there's church behavior. Here's the language. Here's the action that we put on when we're with church people. But Paul's talking about an entire lifestyle shaped by the gospel. I think Amy Carmichael, the Irish missionary to India, gets at this idea perfectly in this brief quote when she said, A cup brimful of sweet water cannot spill even one drop of bitter water, however suddenly jolted. She's getting at the idea that whatever you have in the cup, when you bump someone holding that cup, The only thing the cup can spill is what's contained inside. So if it contains sweet water and you bump it, sweet water comes out. If it contains bitter water, when you bump it, bitter water comes out. What comes out of us in the everyday stuff of life when we get bumped and jolted? Is it 
godliness. Godliness is what God is producing in his people. And it's not an optional upgrade. It's it's not an aftermarket add-on for Christians. It's not just a suggestion or a recommendation from Paul. Paul says he wrote this entire letter so that Christians would know how one ought to behave. That's a strong word. Ought implies duty and obligation and responsibility. And I know that there are some who would say there are no shoulds in the gospel. There are no oughts. Any ought is legalism. The, the law just exposes sin, points you to Jesus. Jesus did all of the obeying. He fulfilled all the obligations so you don't have to obey God. And, and that's not quite right. Uh, there are obligations in our relationship with God. Think of a marriage. A marriage is a covenant relationship of love that comes with both covenant privileges and covenant responsibilities. So a husband and wife expect each other to remain faithful exclusively faithful to not commit adultery. But that expectation, it's an obligation, but it's not a work done to earn payment from the other. It is itself an expression of covenant faithfulness. It's an expression of genuine love. And that's how all of our responsibilities as the people of God function. They're covenant responsibilities because we're in the covenant, because we belong to God, because he saved us. So God calls you to a lifestyle of everyday godliness. But there's more. Why does godliness matter? Evidently, according to these three verses, your godliness, godliness in your life as an individual, has everything to do with God's way of ordering all things. Paul ties the godliness of every individual believer to what God is doing in the world, in his economy, through his people, his church. And that one point is so big and so important to Paul that he stresses it and repeats it three different ways. He says that he's writing so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, verse 15. So godliness in your life matters. It matters because you belong to God's household. You can't separate personal conduct from the life of the church. Ecclesiology defines ethics. Belonging shapes behaving. It all comes out of belonging to the household of God. How you live matters because the church is the household of God. And that could mean, in one sense, we could translate that word to mean the house of God, the structure where God dwells. And I think there's some truth to that. God no longer manifests his presence in brick and mortar temple. He dwells in his church, a temple built out of living stones. Paul makes that point in Ephesians 2.22. But the church is not just a house, the structure where God dwells. The church is a household, the community of people under God's fatherly rule and protection. Which is why Paul just said a few verses before these in 1 Timothy 3, 5, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, he's talking about requirements for elders, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He's not talking there about managing your shingles and your siding, although that's part of taking dominion of what God has entrusted to you. He's talking about disciplining children raising members of a family. A household is a family unit. And how you live, whether your life is marked by gospel godliness in the mundane, in the little things, it really, really matters. 
it matters not because some clunky, irrelevant list of ancient rules dropped out of the sky on you, but because you're a child and you belong to a family. That family has a father, and that father is not negligent. He doesn't run a disordered house where everyone just does as they please. He runs an ordered house out of his love and his wisdom and his goodness. Within a household, there are, as one commentator said, there are rules to obey, there are relationships to maintain, there are responsibilities to fulfill, and all of this is part of the privilege of belonging to a family. And the same is true when we belong to God's family, the household of God. It's not that you do any of these things to earn your place in the family. It's that you have a place. You belong to the family, and so your godliness matters. Or to say it another way, the next phrase Paul uses, godliness in your everyday life matters because you belong to the church of the living God. The economy of God is not merely an abstract idea. It's a tangible reality that God is manifesting. God is displaying and making known in the world through local churches. So Paul calls the church the church of the living God. The living God is a title that indicates at least two things. For one, it identifies God himself as the source of life. He is the immortal God, as Paul says at the beginning and the end of this letter. The immortal God. He is the God who gives life to all things, chapter 6, verse 13. So the living God is the source of life. His life, the quality of life that God possesses is completely different, qualitatively different than the life we have. We have life because he gave us life. He possesses life in and of himself. He doesn't get it from anywhere. It's not sustained by anything else. He is the sustainer of all life. And to call God the living God also sets God apart from every other false God, every idol, every philosophy, every false teaching in the world. When Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles single God out as different than all the false gods. They call him the living God as opposed to those dead idols that you formerly served. He's the living and true God, 1 Thessalonians 1.9. So when Paul calls the church the church of the living God, he is setting the church apart from every other institution, every other organization, club, charity, network, ministry, The church is unique on earth. It is the only community of people on earth where God, the living God, manifests his presence, his life. We believe that God is omnipresent. He he is present everywhere. There's nowhere that God is not, but God does make his presence known, his presence to bless. He makes that known in particular places. And what God is doing in the world is manifesting his presence through the church. It's his church. It belongs to him. He's the living God. And so he's the one who defines the way his church is ordered, the way his people live. Personal preferences are trumped by God's prerogative, God's plan. And that's why godliness in your life matters. The third image of the church that Paul uses is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Godliness in your life matters because You are a part of God's plan, his only plan for holding up the gospel, for holding out the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glorious gospel of God for the world. God is making that known to the world 
through the church. And that's what Paul's getting at in verse 15 when he calls the church a pillar and buttress of the truth. Those two words are architectural terms and they convey this sense of permanence and stability. In the context of 1 Timothy, where the church in Ephesus has been infiltrated by false teachers who are leading many people to swerve from the faith, this is an incredibly encouraging image with steadfast, immovable permanence. The church is holding out the truth of the gospel to the world. So even though false teachers can creep in and do cause many to swerve from the faith, the church will remain and will persist. Jesus will build his church, and the church will keep holding out the gospel to the world. Today, in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic, you and I need to know that this is still true. The church of the living God is not crumbling, not collapsing. The church is unshakable because God has established her on the foundation of his son, Jesus. So there's some question when Paul's talking about a pillar and buttress of the truth, whether Paul's referring to the church as the corporate community, the entire church, or is he talking about individual members of the church are pillars and protectors of the truth? He does call James and Peter and John pillars of the church in Galatians 2.9, so he certainly thinks of individuals that way. I think either way, the point is basically the same. In fact, there's no way to separate uh, the church as a whole, that function as a pillar and buttress of the truth, protecting and preserving the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. There's no way to separate that from individual members serving as pillars of the truth. That's one reason that we place so much value on load-bearing people spiritually, emotionally, relationally mature members of the church who don't crumble under the weight of life because the gospel's at stake. This is how God is providing the truth of the gospel to the world. And that's why your godliness as a member of the church, a pillar and buttress of the truth, your godliness in everyday life matters. So that's why it matters. But where does it come from? How do you grow in godliness? I want to answer that in two parts. Uh, The standard of godliness and the source of godliness. First, the standard of godliness is found in Scripture alone. Look at verse 14 again. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things. Just just pause to take that in a second. personal correspondence, a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy to send with Timothy when he went to Ephesus so that everybody there would know that Timothy was actually authorized by Paul, sent with a purpose to bring God's order to the church in Ephesus to silence the false teachers. A personal letter Paul wrote to Timothy. Here it is in our possession by God's grace. Paul wrote things. He wrote them down. And the, the cause of that, the necessity for him in that moment was he was aware his plans, he, he may have delayed because of ministry that he had going on in another place. Even though he was planning to go there with Timothy, he put it in writing so that Timothy would know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul put instructions into writing in case he was unable to be there in person. So reading this letter is like having Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of God, It's like having Paul show up in person. Written instructions don't diminish the authority of the person that they come from. If kids get home from school and there's a note from mom that says, do your chores before you play outside, that note is as authoritative as if mom had been in the room to say, do your chores 
and then play outside. So these written instructions from Paul serve Timothy and the church in Ephesus and believers in every age and everywhere on earth, giving us authoritative and sufficient access to how the members of God's household ought to live, what God means for his church to look like. Only the word of God, only the word of God, only scripture has the authority to tell men and women in every culture, in every time period, how you ought to think, how you ought to believe what you ought to worship, how you ought to live. There is no other standard that can lay authoritative claims on your life like that. The best ideas of men do not come close. Scripture alone has the authority to tell you how to live, which means we ought to give our attention to this book. And Scripture is sufficient. That means God has said everything we need him to say about how one ought to behave in the household of God. We're not adding to this our own ideas and thoughts and preferences of what the church should be. We're giving our attention to this book, the economy of God, God's way of ordering everything is manifested in the world to the degree that people like you read and understand and believe and obey this book. The economy of God is manifested in the world to the degree that people like you and me trust and obey this book. Scripture is the standard. And the source of godliness then where, where this godliness in our lives comes from, the source of godliness is the gospel of Jesus Christ authoritatively revealed in this book. Paul says in verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. That, that phrase, great indeed we confess, he's calling everyone who reads this to agree, to confess this, to proclaim this. And he's not saying it's a great mystery like it's a, a big, huge secret. He's saying it's glorious. It's awesome. It's awe-inspiring. Mystery is one of Paul's favorite words. He uses it some 20 times, often to refer to the gospel itself, like he does in Ephesians six nineteen. He, he's not talking about a riddle, a puzzle, an enigma. He's talking about the glorious truth that was for ages and generations hidden, but has now been revealed. That's how he talks about the mystery of the gospel in Romans 16 and Colossians 1. Just a few verses before this, he spoke of the mystery of the faith. That's, that's the gospel. But here he uses a phrase, the mystery of godliness. Godliness is how faith comes out in our lives, our everyday lives. And he joins with this one phrase, he joins together gospel doctrine and gospel implications. The mystery, that's the gospel. Godliness, that, that's the, the gospel coming out our lives. The NIV translates this, the mystery from which true godliness springs. The gospel is the source of all godliness. L- listen, this is absolutely crucial. There will be no true godliness in your life apart from Jesus Christ, who accomplished your redemption and applies it to you. Jesus did everything necessary for you to be redeemed from the chaos and the curse of sin, to be redeemed and reconciled to God, to live in the economy of God. You see, in the the very next verses, the beginning of chapter four, Paul's going to mention teachings of demons and liars whose consciences are seared, and those false teachers 
were convincing people that the way to be right with God was to uh, not get married and to abstain from certain foods, to follow strict diets. Every false teaching has always manifested in some kind of claim, here's what you have to do to save yourself. Here's what you have to do to work your way to God. You can just follow these rules and be good enough for God. But the mystery of godliness is not at all about what we did. It's about what God did for us through Jesus, that the only way to be right with God and to live rightly in his world is by knowing and trusting Jesus. And so Paul, in six simple lines, which are probably a a poem or a hymn that the church sang, Paul summarizes the most glorious truth in the universe. And he says, this is the mystery of godliness. This is where it comes from. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, verse 16, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The first three lines, Paul describes the work of Christ. And in the last three, he summarizes the result of Christ's work. Jesus took on humanity so that he could be the mediator between God and man. In his flesh, as the representative of his people, he bore the just judgment of God that your sin and rebellion deserves. But you can be sure, totally assured, that godliness is possible in your life because Jesus was vindicated in the Spirit. That means his resurrection, the Spirit raised him from the dead, proving that everything Jesus said, everything that he claimed, was true. That death could not hold him down. That Sin had no claim against him. He had no record of sin to be held down by death. As Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Raised in the spirit. Not that he was raised immaterially, but that he was raised in a glorious, incorruptible body empowered by the spirit. The first fruits of what you and I are going to be forever. If you are united to Jesus by faith, that's your future too. Paul says he was seen by angels, or maybe a better translation, he appeared. He showed himself to angelic powers, supernatural beings. Most likely refers to Jesus' victorious exaltation above every name that is named in heaven or on earth. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, God raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is where godliness comes from. And all godliness returns to Jesus as Christ exalting witness and worship. Paul says in the last three lines, he elaborates the result of Jesus' work. He was proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. Listen to that. Paul has the the confidence because Jesus accomplished everything necessary. The work is finished so that Paul can speak as though he's talking from the end of history. Jesus will be proclaimed among the nations to all the people, to the farthest reaches of the earth, every tribe and tongue and nation. And this is important. If, if, if you're tempted, if, if you have a pessimistic eschatology that you see stuff going on in the world like a pandemic and an economic crisis and you think, well, th- this is it, just hunker down and hide away and the world is over. No, Jesus is going to be believed on in the world. People from every tribe and tongue and nation are going to hear the gospel and believe. There will be worshipers from every people group on earth gathered together around the throne of the Lamb worshiping Jesus 
he will be believed on in the world. And as this hymn says, he is, he was, because it's as good as done. His blood accomplishes it, guarantees it, and he is exalted, taken up in glory. That's where he is now, ruling and reigning from the right hand of the Father now. So, it's true. The world is not yet the way it ought to be. Thorns and thistles, enmity, strife, sickness, death. The the world is cursed because of Adam's sin, because of your sin and my sin. But the Son of God entered our sin-filled world as one of us, yet without sin. And so, all who trust in Jesus are saved out of sin, out of death, into life, into the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth, holding up the gospel of Jesus for the world. Great and glorious indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Let's pray. Father, what a work you have done. It is glorious in our eyes. And in humble amazement and adoration, we thank you. We thank you for making the gospel known to us. We thank you for saving us, not because of anything we did, but because of your good pleasure making us your own, adopting us as your children, establishing your rule in us, in our hearts first. We pray that as the gospel is proclaimed, that you would bring many more people to know you, to experience your new creation order on the inside, in our souls, establishing your rule and reign there, and then overflowing in the world around us, coming out our speech, coming out in our conduct, coming out in our relationships, in our hospitality, the way that we relate to one another. For Jesus' sake, may Jesus be exalted. May Jesus be worshipped and adored and treasured and trusted among all nations, world without end. Amen.